0: Welcome to Dear Human Resources. In each episode, you'll hear about current HR topics and trends from experts, both practitioners and researchers, with the goal of giving you an insider's look at human resources. I'm your host, Marilyn Germain. This is the first episode of the series It's Personal. And the goal of It's Personal is to get to know the HRD person or the HR person behind the author of books and research articles. And today, our guest is Dr. Julie Gedrow. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Julie is the Dean of the School of Business at SUNY Empire State College. She is the author of numerous research articles and books. She served as the president of the Academy of Human Resource Development, and she has received several national honors and awards. So let's start, Julie, with where you grew up. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: I was born and raised in Newport News, Virginia, which is part of the Virginia Peninsula. Beautiful town, mostly military, shipyard. Those are some of the major employers in that area. A very beautiful part of the world to grow up. So I spent a lot of time outside in nature, enjoying the the majesty of creation.
0: Did where you grew up shape the person you have become? And if so, how?
1: To a large extent, it did, because I love to be around water. And I find a sense of peace by a river or a bay or an ocean. At the time and place where I grew up, born in 1962, so I grew up in the 60s and 70s, my experience and observation is that Virginia was a more conservative place to grow up than it would be today. Although I didn't necessarily have words for it or theories or models, I had a sense from pretty early on that I wanted to move to a metropolitan area, more diverse, more where where I could be more expansive as a human being. I wouldn't have traded it for anything, but I knew that it was not a place where I would spend my life. Do you have a, a favorite childhood memory? Hard to pick one. There's very many. I think if I were to share one, it would be memories of being at my paternal grandmother's home. So my father's mother in West Point, Virginia, which is an industrial town, mostly centered around a pulp and paper mill. It's a little bit southeast of Richmond, Virginia. And I loved being at Nanny's house because there was joy and connection. She was very religious. She was Catholic. I loved going to church with Nanny. I loved all the artifacts of Catholicism. And there was just a deep sense of how wonderful it is to be alive. It was not so much that there were any particular luxuries or comforts, but it was the way that it felt to be in her house with her. That's what I would point to as probably my best childhood memory. And I carry her spirit with me a lot of times.
0: You speak rather openly about being sober for many years, 30 Mm -hmm. years, if I recall. What do you
1: think triggered You're drinking 30 years ago. I have, of course, thought about this. So my sober date is February 4th, 1989. And it's always a day at a time, but it has been contiguous since then. So I don't know if I completely subscribe to a disease model of alcoholism and addiction. I don't know that I think that it's completely environmental. And I don't know that it's completely bad choices. It's some composite to me of all of those. But when I have figured out, and it's a journey, what was the attraction to willfully numbing oneself? There's a lot of different answers to that, but I would point to a mixture and because it, it started off for me as hilarity and fun, but quickly deteriorated into something much more perilous.
0: You speak very freely about being
1: sober. Why? I would point to two primary coexisting reasons. And the first is I respect myself and I love myself, and I have come to have an experience that there's nothing about me that is very central to who I am that I want to dance around or shield or hide, and I am not making any judgments about anybody else's decision about what to disclose or when or how. For me, being out, if you will, about being someone who leads a sober lifestyle is a matter of self-respect, self-esteem. And also, it's been curious to me over the years how many times in work or personal or other venues the subject comes up where there is a negotiation around, no, thank you. I don't want a drink. So some of it has also been the dynamics of being sober in a world where alcohol is sometimes a ubiquitous facet of being alive. And there are times, including recently, when it was a matter of setting a stage up front that I don't partake. I don't want to create an issue out of it, but I am sober, but please do not alter your behavior because of me. So the second reason is, and I did not anticipate this would happen, but it's been consistent over the last, particularly the last 10 years, is when it comes up and when I identify as someone who leads a sober lifestyle, It often leads to conversations where I'm asked my insight or I'm asked for input about a situation. And and I don't mean insight as in a therapeutic insight, like how to help someone put a drink down, but rather what it's like, what modalities do I practice to stay well? I have come to experience and see... That being out and open is part of how I can be of service and of help to other people. That's how I would put that because I, mission sounds self important to me. But I do think that sometimes I can offer an ear or a heart or words to help somebody else.
0: Is there a published article or a conference paper of yours? that you wish you had not published? No, it's
1: an interesting question. No, I, I feel good about who I've gotten to work with and yeah. Another very personal topic.
0: You talked fairly openly about identifying as LGBT. How did you live your coming out? You talked about being born in 1962, living in a fairly conservative area. And did you come
1: out to your parents early on or to your guardians early on? I'm convinced people try to do the best they can, including my own parents. God rest both of their souls. So it wasn't ever a matter of sitting down and having a conversation about anything. But I was tomboyish. I was gender fluid before I knew any of the words for any of this meant. But I was... Sort of non, not, not very non binary, but I certainly was tomboyish. So anybody tuned in probably wondered. And I tried to be straight. And I say that very sincerely with no sarcasm or I say that very ironically, I'm going to use this word very soberly because I thought that that's what one should do. But that was not possible. It's not who I am. But that whole process of coming out personally was challenging. Nobody's fault, but the whole environment and the time and the place in history, it was not easy or comfortable.
0: Did you wish you had been raised in a more open environment, such as San Francisco or New York or
1: in a large city where it might have been easier? I think that a different time and place could have been easier, certainly, but I have no regrets about any aspect of my identity. And I have no regrets about how I grew up, where I grew up, because it's all been part of a recipe for how I think I can be of service to others, vocationally, avocationally. And also, I, it's part of the journey that I've had to walk. So I, I will say that I do have a lifelong passion for metropolitan areas. I will own that.
0: So Julie, you are the vice president of the Yorkshire Terrier National Rescue. How did that passion for Yorkshire Terriers start?
1: When I moved to Atlanta, 1988, a new friend of mine, I was at her home in an adorable little four-legged jumped on the sofa and came over to me. And I I was smitten instantly. And I said, who is this? It was a Yorkshire Terrier. And so there was just something about that breed that works for me. And so a few years later, I got one and then I got another. And then I don't remember how, why, what, when, but I was on the web and I came across an organization that was looking for volunteers. Uh, And I was in Atlanta at the time, as I said, and I I signed up to volunteer and I was accepted. And so I was a very hands-on volunteer. Like we were doing even transport at the time. So transporting rescue. And that was Yorkshire Terrier national rescue. And the rest, as they say is history because then I was asked to do different types of roles, including state director for Georgia, Florida, and then when I moved up here to the Northeast, I became the state director for New York and New Jersey. And then I was asked to be on the board and then asked to be the vice president. We've rescued between 3,000 and 4,000 dogs. It's a serious, committed group of volunteers, Yorkshire Terrier National Rescue. And we're headquartered in Nashville. That's where the founder and the president lives and is headquartered. So uh, lifelong joy. Yorkshire Terriers. I love all four-leggeds and I love people and Yorkshire Terriers are my love.
0: What is it about them that you connected so easily
1: with them? What kind of characteristics do they have? I think they're, they're little and they're feisty and they're really smart and they're really affectionate and I just love how they look. They're also super portable they're not low-maintenance dogs, but what, what animal or child is. So it's, it's not, definitely not a, a toy. It's a commitment. But it works for me. They're smart, and they're, they can read a situation in a way that's very, very captivating.
0: You recently completed a degree from the School of Theology at the University of the South. What kind of degree was it? and? Why did you pursue it?
1: I think what you're referring to is my recent graduation from the education for ministry program, which okay. it's not a degree. It is a completion. And I'm going to read it so that I offer the most articulate and crisp description of the program. It's from page three of the first of the four textbooks of the program. Welcome to the Education for Ministry program begun in 1975 at the School of Theology at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee, and continuing through you. Education for Ministry is a four-year program in group reflection and study to support formation for Christian ministry in daily life. And that's the end of the passage that I want to read. It's offered through participating parishes. So it's a sort of a global model, where the curriculum comes from the University of the South and Suwannee, Tennessee program, but I took it through my church in Rochester, St. Paul's Episcopal Church. So we had a mentor, who's the director of adult formation, who was our mentor. And before the pandemic, we meaning my fellow EFMers, we would meet on Thursday evenings for upwards of two hours to reflect on what we had studied since the last meeting. And so every year has a particular set of curriculum. First year's Old Testament of the Bible, second year, New Testament, third year, Christian ethics, and fourth year focuses more on philosophy and practice. So it has been transformative in helping me get clearer and clearer about my identity and who I want to be in the world and what I offer. It's not a program to become a clergy, and it's not a program that leads to a job. It's HRD-related, for sure, at an individual level. A few
0: years back, you were on the board of directors of the Preservation Association of Central New York. What attracted you to serve on that
1: association? President at the time of Preservation Association of Central New York called on me to connect and talk about my service as a board. So they came looking for me, and I'm not quite sure. And I let it go. I'm like, okay, you know, Syracuse, I lived there for a while and I think began to be someone with a reasonably known profile um, across the city. It's a small city, it's a great city, but small. They recruited me. And I think it might've been because of my board service on other not-for-profits. It might be also because I had a super old house, not on the historic register, but I do, another love of mine is quirky old real estate properties of which I've lived in several, including the one I'm in now. But it might've been that too, but that was a wonderful experience where we met and advocated and for preservation, historic preservation, and sacred sites, and also had an annual award for someone who has restored a site or a property. So how old is the house you live in now? It was built in 1880, 141 years old. Any ghosts? It has very, very good energy, very bright but grounded energy. And it's right next to the community labyrinth garden in my neighborhood, in the city of Rochester. You mentioned loving Rochester. What is it you like about it? Much everything. Of course, putting child poverty and the uneven landscape of public education and opportunity, acknowledging that, and then putting that to the side To say what I love about this town, the primary aspect is the people who have a warm, polite disposition in general, I've experienced. And it's a small, like Syracuse, it's a rather small city, but it feels like a metropolitan area because of the richness of culture and art and history, music and beauty and geography. My house is about a mile and a half from Mount Hope Cemetery. And that's where Frederick Douglass is buried and Susan B. Anthony and other notables, but it's very, very meaningful to me to live in a cradle of human rights and social justice.
0: Julie, do you have
1: fears? What are your biggest fears? Not for myself. I mean, other than the fear of the risk of being a human being. I mean, that's so, I don't, I don't want to sound like I think that I'm invincible. Clearly, I'm certainly, I have an appropriate sense of myself in proportion. Fear, I, if I had a concern, it's for next generations coming after 58, almost 59-year-old person, me, the climate, the cost of education and higher education, What's the world of work becoming and what is it going to continue to be? I have concerns for youth and I'm hopeful in human ingenuity to figure out solutions to all of these problems that I think are probably in some form or another on, on everyone's mind.
0: So you don't fear height or death or anything else?
1: That's curious that you mentioned that because I'm not crazy about, being up really high, and I would have no interest in standing on a balcony. Actually, I've been in, you know, on a very high balcony looking out. No, that's that's not interesting. I wouldn't say that I have a, a phobia or a fear of it, but I, I don't I don't appreciate that experience, and I have no fear of death. Do you have artwork in your home? After a fashion, I have a nautical relic or two, and I have a historical relic or two. And I have a couple of my mother's, um, the National Beta Club. She grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and I have her high school diploma. That's very, very meaningful to me. What year? 1949. I like fresh and modern. I like to keep my thinking new. I like to keep myself physically vibrant, but I really am in awe of history. And relics and artifacts. So,
0: who was your favorite person in history? Again, hard to hard to
1: pick. Jesus, Jesus Christ. Do you have any special talents? I am a musician and I'm an athlete. Neither of which I would not have ever ended up at Carnegie Hall, nor would I have ended up on the tennis tour. So let let's keep this right sized. So I was a good club-level tennis player. My game was characterized, literally, someone said, Julie Gedro has a very pretty game, and I had a lot of resilience. So that was a lot of fun. So I I was a good athlete. I was a good tennis player, long-distance runner. And my suspension is given out, is why I'm using the word was instead of am. And I'm a good enough musician sing in our choir pre-pandemic, of course. But now I think we're going to start try to get back together. But we'll see. It's always mindful of health and wellness. And I've played some music um, in venues with my school during the pandemic, done some music sessions and sang America the Beautiful for our virtual commencement ceremony. I think one of my biggest talents is I have a talent for spoiling Yorkshire Terriers It's probably my, my biggest talent.
0: So we know you have furry four-legged children. Any regrets of not
1: having human children? I would be an excellent, uh, and I'm told, uh, I'm told this, and I, know, I, I think this is true, I'd be a great mother today, but there's a time warp issue there because I'm grandmother age. I don't have any regrets about not having children, physical, human children, But I love to mentor and coach and be anybody's Aunt Julie, even in pop-up situations when someone wants Aunt Julie to dispense wisdom and advice. Julie, how would you like to be remembered? A really good sport who lost graciously and won with class, an educator, someone who was uh, willing to take calculated risks to improve conditions wherever she saw them, a dedicated employee of the State University of New York System and Empire State College, a good human being, a loyal parishioner of St. Paul's Episcopal Church, a good sister, a good aunt, a good friend, a good dog mother, and someone who maybe if someone thinks about me after I'm a cadaver at the medical school, which is what my plan is, someone who, I'm really glad I met her. She's a good person. That's how I'd like to be remembered.
0: In the next segment of this podcast, I'm going to ask you some short questions. And they only require short answers. You ready? I'm ready. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Beach Or mountain? Beach. And a Fitzgerald or Lady Gaga?
1: Lady Gaga. Are you a vegetarian? Vegetarian Vegetarian-ish. Expand on that. I have strayed from eating or craving any sort of meat. And it's somewhat through an ethical lens. Somewhat I do better if I keep a plant-based diet. So, but if I go out, uh, and I see a salmon on the menu or a tuna on the menu, I'm I'm going for it.
0: Do you bite your nails? Never have. No. And what question do
1: you wish I had asked you and I didn't ask? No, I can't think of any. I think well, a yes no question. Do I have my dream job as a day job? That, if you would ask me that without hesitation, my answer is yes. I literally have my dream job do you feel complete yes with a qualifier I feel complete today and then I have new completes in the future so there's there's a lot more to come
0: thank you for agreeing to participate in its personal podcast series Julie I hope it was as much fun for you as it was for me
1: without a doubt I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much. This was, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this
0: episode of Dear Human Resources. In each episode, you will hear about current HR topics and trends from experts, both practitioners and researchers, with the goal of
1: giving you an insider's look at human resources.